My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I have certain times when we gather when I just feel like I need to be together with God's people, and today was one of those days, so thank you for joining with me. And then I also have these feelings like I need to hear a word from God, and I think today's one of those days. So we're, uh, we're on a journey toward Calvary and toward Easter, and that journey's called Lent. And we're a couple weeks into it. And what we've been trying to work on in this journey is to say, how can we become better lovers? And in particular, how can we love Jesus better? And so we've been tracing his journey as he gets closer and closer to the cross in the Gospel of Luke. So I'd like to invite you to take a Bible out if you have one, if you brought one with you, or there's one in the chair, or you can open up your phone and look up a Bible and turn to Luke 22. Luke 22, and I'm going to start reading in Luke 22 at verse 39. Before we share this, I'd like you to know that um, I'm praying for you, and this is my prayer. The Lord be with you. Luke 22:39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw behind them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So we've been thinking about falling in love and rekindling what might be a first love. And so one of the ways that we've tried to enter into this topic is by talking about our dating and our first dates, maybe our first love. And some of us have been going back and rethinking some of that, reflecting on what a wonderful adventure it was when we first fell madly in love with somebody. So Mary and I have been talking about this, and one morning this week, she shared a news feed that she got about someone who was kind of in a first love situation, but it didn't exactly go so well. And uh, this person actually received a text from her date a few months after they dated, and it had some words of advice for how she could have improved the date. Uh, And this is what the text said. Hello, Kimberly. I know we went on a date quite a while ago now, but I'd like to explain to you why I haven't messaged you back. I feel like you could have made the date better. Here's a a few reasons why. And then what followed was a text that had 15 bullet points describing how she could have improved herself. Among these suggestions were getting a tan, fuller lips, different hair color, hair extensions, more confidence, less makeup, and more stylish clothes so that he would not be embarrassed to be seen with her. It was interesting because also in this list was one bullet point that said, you should look more natural. So I'm not sure how that works, but... He also had a problem with her choice of conversation. He said this, You should not keep talking about your past because I don't care about it. 
actual suggestion. You also took issue with what she ordered at dinner, claiming that she needed to lose weight. She said, I know you got a salad, but having full-fat Coke is more calories than you need to have. He then went on to say, she should be more sensitive to the feelings of others. (laughs) And this whole thing concluded with him saying, if you make these changes, I'll think about going on another date with you. What do you think? Should she give the guy another chance? (laughs) No. I'd like to meet that guy, actually. (laughs) So this is a little example of how not to fall in love. And maybe he could use some lessons on how to have a good conversation, how to communicate. So Mary, I think it was Wednesday morning she told me about this, and then I came in and I dove into this passage in Luke 22 about Jesus praying in the garden. And it struck me that this is a very different way to communicate. And I was fascinated by this in light of the fact that so much of our communication, much of our conversation among each other can be somewhat dysfunctional and um, self-centered, that oftentimes our communication is to criticize each other or it's filled with negativity or disapproval or blame or condemnation. So we can be really harsh sometimes. And our communication reveals something about the way we love, so that our love is something like um, conditional. We love you if, or we love you when, or we love you because. I love you if you measure up. I love you when you make me happy. I love you because you deserve it. This kind of communication is hard on love, very hard. It makes relationships fragile, and it makes our relationships conditional. And many people are in these kinds of relationships. Conditional love doesn't just happen on first dates. It also happens in friendships, and it happens in marriages, and it happens in families. So sometime on Wednesday afternoon when I was studying this passage, it struck me that Jesus praying in the garden revealed an entirely different kind of relationship that he had with his heavenly Father, that there was something really important going on here. And I thought that if we explored the conversation that Jesus was having with his Father, it might help us grow in love with Jesus a little bit more. So Gary actually already touched on what is my favorite definition of prayer, and it's simply this, conversation with God. That's what prayer is. Now, we know that a conversation takes two people. Conversation is not a monologue. Conversation is two-way. So one person speaks and the other one listens, and then that person speaks and the other one listens. So we understand that prayer is a conversation. It's not a monologue. It's a two-way conversation. And that's what I want to explore as we look at this conversation that Jesus had with his Heavenly Father. And as I was thinking about it, it struck me that there was four kind of conversational topics that came out of this prayer. The first one is the topic of strength, the need for strength. Jesus starts his conversation with God by asking about strength in the face of temptation. And the reason I know this is on his mind is because just before he begins his prayer, he turns to the disciples and he says to them, pray that you do not fall into temptation. Pray for strength. And that was on his mind, I'm sure, because He needed strength himself. 
It's the same thing we pray for when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is praying for the need of the moment because he's, he's facing in this moment what is perhaps the most extreme duress that he has yet faced in his life. He has intense pressure. And this is a pivotal moment. It seems like it's a make or break moment as Jesus is praying in the garden. Jesus needs to stre- strength to face the thing he knows is coming. It's right on the horizon. It's his own crucifixion. And the temptation is very real for Jesus to abandon it, to say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do this. I don't want that much suffering. Jesus feels weak, and so he needs strength. It's a very human moment. It's the kind of moment that's described in Hebrews 4.15. Here's what that verse says. It says this, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Jesus is really tempted. If he can avoid the crucifixion, he would like to. Did you know that if you were to study in depth the time Jesus spent in the garden, it seems like there's one word that comes up more than any other word in all everybody's comments about this passage. Would you like to guess what that word is? Agony. Agony. It's, many commentators actually refer to it as the agony in the garden. Facing this intense agony, Jesus knows that he needs strength. And the agony that he's facing is not simply facing death. He's facing something else. And it's revealed in the phrase, take this cup from me. Jesus needs strength because he is facing something that is unbearable. And so this is his prayer. And then the second topic he turns to then is agony. Jesus wants to talk to his heavenly father about this suffering that he's about to experience. And I'm sure he's overwhelmed with grief and fear and sorrow and anguish and torment, maybe even physical pain, because agony that intense can cause you to hurt. And so Jesus tells God, he pours out this lament, no holding back, no sugarcoating, no denial. Have you ever been in that kind of agony? So much grief and sorrow that you can't hold it back. You have to say it. And Jesus is very honest with his father about what he wants. He says, take this cup from me. Remove this. Take it away. And when he uses that language, he's actually referring to something very specific. The Bible uses this phrase in a number of places, and it refers specifically to the cup of God's wrath and judgment. It comes out in passages like Jeremiah 25, 15, which says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because the burden of this cup is so great. Job 21, it is said, God stores up the punishment of the wicked for their children. Let him repay the wicked so that they themselves will experience it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup 
of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus is agonizing not so much about the death that will be coming to him, but he's agonizing about the consequences of this crucifixion, which is to experience the wrath of God in all of its fullness, the wrath that we all deserve for our sins. The weight of it seems impossible to bear. Jesus says, uh, the, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane often, and so it's no coincidence, I don't think, that he prays this particular prayer in the Garden. Gethsemane means oil press. It was an olive garden, and so in the same way that olives are pressed until they give up their oil, so Jesus is about to be pressed, and he doesn't want it. And so his prayer The second topic of his conversation with God is, hey, God, can you take this cup away? One scholar that I was reading made a note that it's also no coincidence that from the garden on the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple. And in the temple, they offered sacrifices daily for sins. And so Jesus, no doubt, when he was in the garden, had seen the smoke rising up from these sacrifices and in this moment realizes that he is about to become that sacrifice. He is to be consumed by the cup of God's wrath and judgment. It's a great agony. Which leads us to the third topic of his prayer. Even though he's facing this judgment, this overwhelming agony, the next topic of his prayer is humility. He says, not my will but yours be done. God, take this cup, but if you will it, your will, not mine. Jesus recognized in this moment that his life was in God's hands, and he humbly acknowledged that he trusted God to hold him even in the midst of this. He trusted God's plan. He trusted God's power. He trusted God's methods. He trusted God with everything that he was. He trusted God with all that he was about to face. He trusted that he was in God's hands and they were good hands. Not my will, but yours. And boy, doesn't that hit close to home. with the events of the past few days and the tragedy of this accident, do we trust God? Do we trust that he's, we're safe in his hands, that he's still holding us? Can we entrust God with all that we have, all that we are, all of our concerns, all that we will face? Just a few hours after Jesus was in the garden, this trust was put to the test because he found himself hanging on the cross. And his trust even then does not flinch. As his life ebbs away, Jesus continues his conversation with God. He continues to recognize God is with him. He continues to trust God. And he says, into your hands... I commit my spirit. 
I still trust you. Not my will, but yours. This kind of trust actually led to the fourth topic that comes out in this prayer. The topic is prayer that is beyond words. Conversation with God in which we have nothing left to say. This text we read in Luke 22 says, As Jesus prayed, he was pressed in by the weight of the agony, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. Jesus has been pressing in for strength. He's been pressing in to trust. He's been pressing in with humility. And the intensity of this is so much that it is wringing the sweat from him like great drops of blood. This is a prayer beyond words. If there's ever any question that Jesus understands the heartaches that we face in life, a passage like this answers all those questions for me of what Jesus was willing to do in love for us. And I've never experienced anything like Jesus here, but I have had moments in which I had no words to pray because the burden's too great. And the most recent moment like that for me came on Friday afternoon when I got a phone call about Bruce in Virginia. And as soon as I hung up the phone, I heard God say to me, I have to go to your house. I have to go to their house. And I got in my car, and my GPS says it's 21 minutes from our parking lot to their front door. And as I drove, I had no words to pray. And I felt like the mission that God was sending me on was to come and offer sympathy and support and a prayer for the family. And when I got to the front door, I still had no words to pray. And I got into the house and it was filled with heartbroken people. And I had no words to pray. And after some small talk, I said, I came here to pray. And even when I said that, I had no words to pray. And I don't know what I prayed for you guys. It was probably dumb. Because it was beyond words. I don't know how to pray in the face of that kind of tragedy. After I left, a verse came to my mind, and it was Romans 8.26, a verse of really good news for when we have a prayer that's so deep and so agonizing that we don't have words. And this is what Romans 8.26 says. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. Many of us have faced times in our lives when we didn't have words, but we still prayed, and people prayed for us, and it might have been wordless, but the Spirit was interceding with groans way beyond our understanding. So a conversation, I said at the beginning, is a two-way communication. 
we talk and God listens, and then God speaks to us and we listen. One thing that doesn't come out very clearly in Luke 22 is what was God saying back to Jesus? We only got one part of the conversation. Now, sometimes the Bible does give us both sides of a conversation. We can hear what God's saying to people, but oftentimes it's kind of left open to our imaginations. So I was thinking about what would God say back to Jesus in the garden? What was the other side of the conversation? And I know I'm imagining some of this, but I'm building it on what I know about God and God's character. And this is what I know about God's character. He is good. And he loves us. God is a God of mercy and grace, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. This is what we know about God. And so I'm imagining that as Jesus is honestly pouring out his heart to God, he's admitting his weakness, he's admitting his need for strength, he's admitting the temptation that he's facing, he's admitting his anguish. God is not like a picky suitor offering conditional love. God is not standing off in a distance with his arms crossed in disgust saying, well, come back to me when you got it all figured out. Come back to me when you've pulled yourself together. Come back to me when you've overcome your doubts. Come back to me when you don't have your anguish. God is not that kind of God. Instead, God is listening to Jesus as he pour out his heart, and God is saying, I am pleased with you. You are my beloved son. I will send my angels to strengthen you. I will uphold you with my strong arm. I will hold you in my hands. God is saying to Jesus, I love you and I'm with you. And I will not leave you. This is God's response when Jesus came to him in this prayer. And because Jesus followed God's plan all the way to the cross, all the way to his death, he opened up a door so that we can have a conversation with God. Anytime, anywhere, about any subject, we can come to God and we can admit our weakness, our temptation, our anguish, our need. And then we can listen for God's response to us. And what God says to us when we come to him that way is he says, I am pleased with you. I love you. You are my beloved. I will give you strength, and I will hold you in my hands, and I will not let you go. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and we admit that we are a people who have a big need. And God, I don't know if I have many more words to say except those. But I thank you, God, for the truth of your word. I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.